Welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. I think also, you know, and I've been on both sides of this, people are generally very excited when somebody is very excited about what they do and to work with them. Women Who Code Talks Tech is a segment that features experts in a specific field of technology sharing their knowledge on an in-depth and highly technical subject. Thanks for joining our Women Who Code uh, podcast. Uh, welcome to the show. Um, I'm Eliza Sarabasa. I'm a Women Who Code Leadership Fellow at the Python track. That's nice to meet you. My pronouns are she and her. Today, we're meeting with Danica Marston. She is a Principal Quantum Computing Scientist at Bank of Canada. And our topic for today's show is from astrophysics and discovering new galaxies to building and using quantum computers. So Danica, welcome. It's nice to chat with you today. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. <laughs> I'm going to briefly uh, read over your bio. Uh, it's really impressive. It's like, you know, you're like, thinking like, oh, like, you know, this is chill. It's a normal, like, we're, I think our audience and us, like, we're really impressed with, like, your history and track record of achievement. So let's briefly go over that. So Danica, uh, she received her Bachelor in Science in 2005 and combined honors, physics, and astronomy. Uh, followed by a PhD at the University of Pennsylvania in experimental cosmology, uh, building cameras and telescopes to study for the universe. Following her PhD, Danica accepted a Keek Institute for Space Studies Fellowship at Caltech and has worked with the research group at UC Santa Barbara as a postdoctoral scholar, continuing her work on novel technology for astrophysics. Same time, she also taught astronomy classes at the local Santa Barbara City College and has a small electronic assembly business. After this, uh, she switched gears, working new technology development at Suncor, also in Petrocan, from 2013 to 2015. So that's a recap, and now we'll like, you know, get a little bit more like up to date. So 2015, uh, Danica was recruited to quantum computing, working as a technical project manager for D-Wave Systems, building quantum annealing computers. Uh, in 2020, she moved to a role with the SQT lab at SFU. Oh, you're in my city. Um, and startup uh, Photonics, uh, working on building universal quantum computers uh, with Dr. Stephanie Simmons. In 2021, Danica was recruited to the Bank of Canada to develop their first quantum strategy, that's exciting, program and roadmap, as well as apply quantum computing to central banking. So Danica, um, welcome to the show. Is there any points that I miss or anything else you want to add update, like, you know, your hobbies um, or favorite, like, plant to garden that you'd like to add for your bio? Um, I love animals. <laughs> <laughs> a proud cat mama, and uh, I do a lot of adrenaline sports, so okay. I rock climb and I ski and um, things like that. Okay, so you settled perfectly in Vancouver. We have like rock climbing in Squamish. I think we have the cat cafe and a bunny cafe now here. So excited to see you uh, exploring the city. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss about your career history? Like why you chose this field, like when you were back in school? So I'd say it was sort of philosophically driven. I was very mm -hmm. curious uh, about the world and the universe and I was always fascinated by you know the questions what is out there how do we know what we know which really sort of ultimately led me down this path towards building detectors and cameras and telescopes to study the far universe because ultimately the only information we get about the universe on the largest scales are these photons um, particles of light that arrive here at the earth after traveling for billions of years 
And so how we collect that light with the detectors and the cameras and the telescopes, and then how we process and analyze that information is sort of the source from which we derive all of this knowledge. And getting to the crux of that and, and doing it myself and understanding it myself drove me. But, you know, in hindsight, when you look at my path, it seems, you know, really straightforward. But in fact, I think, as is so often the case in real life with people, it was a little more windy than, uh, than it might for, at first appear. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Recognize the career. So yeah, it's like trying to tie them. It's like you know, why you chose like physics, like in school, like and specifically astrophysics. Like you said, you had a curiosity about the universe. And I'm guessing like your school program. Um, when you were in undergrad, did you know like which major you wanted to go in, or was um something you were kind of exploring? Because I know like you know when we're mm-hmm. university students, like they watch you know, to do the rest of their life, and it's like. It's like, it seems like a very big decision. So what was it like um, for you, like yeah. recalling that this is your passion? Like, um. Well, it's funny <laughs> for me, you know, even a lot of these questions start to come up even in high school. What are you going to do mm-hmm. now that you, as you're leaving high school? And in school, I really liked the clarity of math. You know, you're right or you're wrong. Uh, there's no sort of opinion about it. Whereas in the social science um, and, you know, English and arts, things like that. There was definitely more of an opinion-based merit. And so I really liked that clarity. And then I actually originally thought I was going to go do a degree in science and engineering and uh, go and design crazy planes for the Air Force, that kind of thing. (laughs) I had really liked Top Gun when I was in school. And so I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to design those kinds of planes and maybe fly them too? So that's how I started. And then of course, life intervened. So I actually did my first year of university in general science and Mm -hmm. I was actually really bored. And I- um, (laughs) That's good. It's like you have like a passion, like I want to do more stuff. That's where the curiosity comes in, right? Well, just these large survey courses, generic calculus, there's no sort of- application yet and Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people get lost in that as did Mm -hmm. I so I actually quit after my first year and I became a ski instructor in (laughs) Australia and here in Canada and so I I took that little bit of time off I tried some other things and then after Mm -hmm. a year or so I thought you know I do miss that intellectual stimulation okay I'll, I'll give it one more go and in my second year I started to get to study you know see things like um relativity and quantum mechanics and things mm-hmm. like that it got it started to get a little more interesting and I could see more applications mm-hmm. yeah that's great to hear it's like your process you said, you said like kind of a gap year or kind of like take a step back thing like what do I really want to like focus on like your interest in hobbies and okay like yeah in, in college university like there is that like-minded people and like everyone's having like you said the conversation topics like they're all induced by the whereas like outside of school it's like it, it's a different sense of community right I don't think I know a single person who hasn't had a moment in their life of what the hell am I doing um, right now. And, and I think becoming skilled at when you're in those moments, figuring out, having a process for figuring out where you're going to go next, Mm -hmm. which entails usually a bit of research, talking to people, networking, Mm -hmm. talking to people who do jobs that you've never heard of or jobs that you don't know what they entail, things like that traveling, trying, working at different places and giving yourself that room to discover, I think is, is important for everybody. And it never appears as though people, successful people are doing that, but I can almost guarantee that everybody's gone through that at least once in their life. 
I understand you mean like you broaden your horizons, you learn two different perspectives. Because like when you're elementary, high school, it's like you're still in like you're kind of just a safe bubble. And then you kind of like explore the world like without that um, bubble. But it's like that quote, like um, uh, you, I don't know what I don't know, right? I'm sure mm-hmm. like paraphrasing a, a larger famous quote. But yeah, it's good to mm-hmm. like your understanding, just like that uncertainty. But then you were still able to find your passion and like stick with it. Um, and, yeah, so- and it, keeps, it keeps happening. I mean, it'll happen again after undergrad sometimes, after <laughs> grad school, after you finish with a job at a particular institution. Mm-hmm. That moment's like, what am I doing? But then just like taking, you said like, I'm on a grace and pause to figure out, okay, like let's figure out what I actually want to do and go mm-hmm. from there. It's uh, great. This is a good segue um, for anything. So you, so you found your passion, you finished um, undergrad and got you, but then what made you decide like, like higher education, like post-grad, like you want to do, um, how many terms states like a graduate student, grad school? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here we go again. So I was, uh, when I was in undergrad, I wound up taking a physics course, which had a couple hundred of students. And mm-hmm. in the spring, there was a professor who was walking by me one day in the hallway and said, what are you doing this summer? And I said, I don't know. And he said, do you want to come work in my lab this summer? <laughs> I said, sure, I need a job. And uh, it turned out that he built telescopes. And so oh, I wound wow. up working in his lab for the next several summers during my undergrad and learning how to solder and machine and write code and all those good things that are effectively what most people think of as engineering, but um, is also encompassed by physics, certain uh, parts of physics. So um, yeah, and I think this happened to me several times where there was somebody who sort of saw my potential and um, you know, when you're, especially when you're young, or if you're changing fields later in life, you don't really have this track record yet to point to, you know your potential and your desires, and you sort of have to push past any naysayers. It's very easy for people just to say like, what do you think you're doing? But later in life, ultimately, you know, you do have this uh, track record that you can point to, um, or that can even hold you back because you think, okay, this is who I am now. But, But yeah, so at that point in time, I was very fortuitous to, you know, sometimes in life it's like that, a pinball machine right where you just are going along in one direction and then somebody influences you so this was one of my key characters this professor and so I worked with him for several years and then and actually later when I left his lab I was curious I said you know of all the students why did you ask me and thinking that he was going to say oh I was trying to promote diversity in physics or something like that and he said oh no you actually tied for the top score on the final exam but wow. the other, other person was much more awkward oh. <laughs> so, um, so yeah sometimes just these things happen and are present opportunities and then um, after my undergrad I was backpacking around Europe for six months mm-hmm. giving myself some time to figure out what to do next and that same professor said, hey, what are you going to do next? And I said, I, I'm not sure yet. And he said, have you thought about grad school? Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't afford grad school. And he said, oh, no, no. And the sciences, if you get in, they pay you. And I said, oh, that changes things. <laughs> so, so I applied to several schools. And um, I knew that if I was going to go do that, I wanted to do experimental cosmology, carry on with building telescopes and studying the far universe. Mm-hmm. And so I only applied to programs where there was already a professor doing that. And I had contacted those specific professors to ask you know, what they had, what kind of work they had and projects. So I think that's important. A lot of people think that you just apply to a 
program at large, but I think it's actually important to realize that, you know, the person who will ultimately be your boss or thesis advisor mm -hmm. is an individual and you kind of need to do the research to seek out who those individuals are, what they work on and get excited about the potential projects because you need to have that connection. So even if you get inside a grad program, you still need to connect with a professor in a lab or yeah, an advisor. And it's focusing like, yeah, if what their um, mission or goal is similar to what you want to work on. You said like you did like the hardware, but you also do it with like, you know what, like, like you said with the soldering, right? You know what it will be used for. So like you understand from both sides perspective. Um, did you have a favorite person that you apply for? Or did you narrow it down to like two great people? Or did you based on like, you know, previous projects they work on or something, you know, it was a future project. You're like, oh, shiny. Um, yeah, there were several great, great people. There was one lab that was focused more on software and I knew I liked building things and mm -hmm. I felt that I was good at that. And that was sort of a, a special skill set. And then it kind of ultimately came down to the cities um, because there were two really great labs doing similar projects. The professors were both great and the other students were both great. And then it just sort of came down to the city that I felt more comfortable in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it's it's hard to, you know, have set criteria to make these decisions. Sometimes you just have everyone, to go through that. Everyone's so awesome, so it's hard. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, as a segue, like, how do you keep up to date? Just like, you know, who's mm -hmm. working on which kind of project, right? Or, um, mm -hmm. you know, that you know that like, oh, this person will be building like this kind of telescope and like these are materials that will go into like building it. Right. Okay. So... Yes, in that realm of the universe, being groups who work on things like space telescopes or large ground-based or balloon-borne telescopes, there aren't that many people working on that stuff. And if you, there's a website called The Archive and it posts for free a lot of papers. People put their um, papers that will be published mm -hmm. online there. And over time, if you follow, there are different threads. So there's one for astronomy and cosmology. And if you just follow over time, you'll realize the same names come up over and over. And so there are these, um, I'd say in the States, maybe on the order of, you know, 20 big labs, especially the hardware part, it's expensive. And so mm -hmm. all of this comes at a cost and they need to get grants in order to do this kind of research. And so you have, yeah, maybe about 20 big labs that are able to participate in these larger physical experiments. And then there will be many other groups or professors who, I think in Canada, there's same thing. I think, you know, there are a couple of larger groups at the larger universities, and then there are some smaller institutions working more on the analysis or the theory, things that don't require so much money, because these telescopes take millions and millions of dollars to build, so mm -hmm. they have to get the funding for that mm -hmm. just imagine like you know the steel and just like have to create the glass and having people to actually create like all that material and then putting it together and then like you said yeah and then after synthesizing the data, all that like interesting data to something coherent <laughs> right these things are very specialized and so once you kind of get into that network you realize okay there's one group one very special group who um you know, for example, in Cardiff, there's one group who they are the experts at making lenses mm -hmm. out of a particular material for uh, doing observations in microwave wavelengths. Mm -hmm. So it's a very specific niche. So if you're going to build a telescope at those wavelengths, that's who you go to to get your lenses. <laughs> I mean, it's just kind of that's 
known, right? So it's, it's like that. There's usually only one or two vendors of particular things and people get known for particular things. So um, for detectors, you know, one of the big, one of the big places that, um, that work on detectors, fabricating them for the first time or, um, and that have foundries are, so the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at um, NASA, for example, is involved in a lot of these projects. They help fabricate things. And then you've got places like NIST in Colorado, the National Institute of Science and Technology. They, so a lot of people work there and do research, but they also, um, some of those people work on developing new types of detectors and, and other, you know, other places too. But these are some of the, the key players and you'll just see them, their names on papers and those institutions on these papers that come up over and over again. It's really good, cool to learn. Thanks for sharing. Just adding on the observatories, did you have um, a favorite space observatory or places like you have a bucket list that you want to visit but haven't visited yet? Hmm. Mm. So not to be like a specific place like because of like the air quality and like right height of the mountain. <laughs> yeah, well, I, yeah, I worked on a telescope during my grad school years that was in the Atacama Desert of Chile in the Andes mm -hmm. Mountains. So uh, at most, the so most ground-based telescopes, you really want to put them in places that are high, but also that are very dry okay. because it's, wa it's water vapor in the atmosphere that will mm -hmm. steal some of your signal that's coming in, but it will also <laughs> emit noise in the same wavelength. So okay. you wanna try to get above as much of the water vapor and then just be in dry places away from the water vapor. And so I loved spending time there. That was really cool. Uh, animals in the desert there, you know, we got to discover new galaxies and clusters of galaxies. So that was incredibly interesting. And then I, I did some follow-up observations on a, um, a radio telescope in Australia, in a town called Narrabri, about 500 kilometers northwest of Sydney called ATCA. And it was an array of telescopes that were on these railroad train tracks. And so mm -hmm. when they would reconfigure the telescopes, which they did while I was there, you could ride on the telescope as it was moving and there would be sort of kangaroos jumping along the side. <laughs> it was really neat. So sometimes, you know, astronomy can take you to these very remote, very interesting places. And then we, we also worked on some balloon-borne telescopes, which I found very interesting. Obviously, you can't go there up into, <laughs> up into the atmosphere or above the atmosphere. But I, I found those experiments very interesting because you're not doing a full space-based mission. You're just mm -hmm. um, going on this huge balloon, these mm -hmm. weather balloons above. And typically, those are launched from the north or the south poles because okay. the winds are circumpolar and they just sort of will circle the pole for about a week oh, or okay. two before they come down yeah so very interesting but there's there is one place that i haven't got to go and so mm -hmm. there are telescopes down at the south pole and most people don't think of the south pole as a very dry place but it is a very dry <laughs> place and so there are telescopes down there and uh, i would love to go down and, and see some of them it's gonna be your next trip you know so and then like a segue plan <laughs> Yeah, that mm -hmm. sounds like fun. Um, excited to like now look these up online, so like all like the photography from them. So I'll have to look that up. Uh, all right, I'm just going to dial back a bit uh, about your postdoc, um, Caltech, UC Santa Barbara, and the mm -hmm. uh, well, correctly uh, Keck Institute for Space Studies. Did you have any like key achievements you'd like to share? 
Um, so I specifically chose to work with a professor at UC Santa Barbara on, and it was sort of based on work that he and others had done at Caltech mm -hmm. on this new type of detector for astrophysics that they were developing called a microwave kinetic inductance detector. And prior to that, the, the detectors that were being used, say, in Hubble and others, um, you'd have this array of detectors, and then you'd have to put a filter in front for, you know, if you want to know if, if the light is red, you have to put a red filter in front. And what that means is you're actually throwing away a whole bunch of the photons that are coming in. And when you're studying things, you know, galaxies billions of light years away, there aren't many photons coming to you in the first place. So it's a really wasteful thing to do to throw all those photons away. And so what was cool about these microwave kinetic inductance detectors is that every single photon that landed, you could tell what its you know wavelength or color or energy was that which was different and unique. So it was um, you could detect all the individual photons within a certain wavelength range. And then yeah afterwards if you wanted to edit in the data to remove like all the red ones you could do that then we were able to like, collect all the information at once the first time. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. Yeah. It was much more efficient. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And it was like project manager, it's like efficient and like on time. So <laughs> yeah. Um, do you want to add something else? Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize just how long, you know, to build up a solid signal of a faraway galaxy, how long you might have to wait to collect the light till mm -hmm. you get a good enough signal coming out of the noise. And so how patient the older astronomers were, we'll say. And nowadays with, as we develop these new types of more efficient mm -hmm. systems, we're able to collect, you know, a lot more data more quickly. And this is what's allowing us to, for example, with the new James Webb Space Telescope and yeah. others, so quickly map out huge swaths of the sky, relatively quickly, you know, over years, <laughs> instead, <laughs> instead of, of decades. Like, like centuries and millennia and so on. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. We're able to, just like with the modern technology, it progress, we're able to collect that information and share it with the community. Um, yeah, just going to continue that conversation, like postdoc. Um, would you be able to share what your transition's like from academia to the private sector? So like, or the benefits or like the challenges for you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a tough decision, but as I was a postdoc, I'm sort of evaluating, you know, postdoc is sort of this proto professor mm -hmm. and I was looking around and evaluating whether or not I wanted to really make that push and be a professor and stay in academia. And I decided that for the most part, what professors do wasn't really get interesting to me. <laughs> so, get well, it depends. it's more about how they get tenure, what they're spending their time <laughs> on and day to day. And uh, that was less exciting to me than other options. And so, yeah, I decided to go and um, try the private sector. And so in terms of the benefits, I really liked my experience, both in larger as well as smaller industrial companies. You know, startups were really cool because you have the combined resources of the equivalent of several labs all together. So you'd have in a group, maybe something like 20 postdocs all together and you could move really fast and get things done. That was really interesting. And then with larger companies, what I liked, what I've liked is that they have the bandwidth to develop people and really optimize for good company culture, which has been shown to increase productivity and revenue by quite a lot. I think this is something that is still is not quite appreciated enough today, mm -hmm. but it also 
benefits employees a lot. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and yeah, I, I think these larger companies, you know, startups, they're constantly just trying to stay afloat so they don't have as much ability to focus on those kinds of things. But, you know, when you go to places like Google, the fact that you can spend 20% of your time working on whatever you want to work on, those kinds of things, right? That happens when you get to the bigger companies. But there are these trade-offs. So right. with startups, there's often this really strong passion and, you know, we're a family and we're going to move really fast. We're going to change the world, that kind of thing. But then with these larger companies, there's a bit more of a, a nice feeling of balance that, mm -hmm. yes, I'm going to do really useful things but I'm also going to be working reasonable hours and get to see my family and things like that. Yeah, just recognizing trade-offs. I think when you're younger, hungry, like you want to be able to wear a lot of hats, you know, like do the different projects, say, yeah, that's okay. And just like go full steam ahead. I understand like academia, large companies, they sometimes have a process that feels like a long time. Sometimes it's like, this is the way it's always been, or this is like, this proved to be useful. So I um, appreciate you, like you sharing like the different feedback if people want what they're looking mm -hmm. for their career and knowing like which company the benefits and challenges are. Yeah. And I think one thing that I learned too, going into industry is that, you know, there's this idea that in, in certain spheres, maybe academia, maybe government labs kind of work that you don't have to worry about, you know, selling things. Whereas when you're in industry, it's sort of about the bottom line and selling things. But actually, when you think about it, everything is actually about selling. When you're writing grant applications, you're trying to sell yourself and, mm -hmm. You know, when you're trying to get good students to come work for you, you're, you're selling yourself. So I think that's actually one skill that probably in hindsight, I should have developed more when I was younger was, you know, not trying to sell people things that they don't want, but just mm -hmm. how do you even transitioning between uh, industries, how do you take this skill set and spin it so people mm -hmm. understand the value over here, those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. The transferable skill sets and... I know it's like, it's strange to say, it's like selling and capitalism, but also it's like, you know, it's a bartering trade culture. Like you're saying, you trade um, your knowledge and your expertise and time for, you know, more support as an employee and like a different schedule, right? So, well, selling is really yeah. comes down to understanding what somebody else's needs are and mm -hmm. then determining, am I the per can I help get what that person needs? Okay. Or do I know somebody else who can do it, et cetera, right? Okay. Yeah, I understand that when you put it that way, thank you. Yeah. And see, I'll cycle back, cycle back on our um, topic for the podcast. How did you first start working in quantum computing? Yeah, so when I was leaving academia, I had to go through, you know, a period of research to understand what does somebody who comes from astrophysics, what can they do in the world and um, what were my skills relevant for? And so I, you know, sat down and had to think and was thinking, okay, there are companies that do work in the space sphere or satellites or things like that that make use of optics and I you know I made this big list of companies and then I was thinking okay I also am interested in perhaps you know energy related things solar energy those kinds of companies and I applied to a whole bunch of different things and I had thought about quantum computing as well it was pretty nascent still back then uh, this was around 2013, I guess. And so I had actually, one of the companies that I had applied to was D-Wave. They were looking for ultimately a, a physicist, but at the time they had just hired somebody with the same skill set, more or less. Mm -hmm. And so I, I got a different 
job offered and followed this other path. And then a couple of years later, they came back to me and they had hunted me back. So that's something that can happen too, as you think mm -hmm. sometimes you might not get the job at the time, but you don't realize that uh, when the time is right, they might come back to you. So you can always keep that in your pocket. Uh, and yeah, they were really looking for physicists, particularly with good communication skills that had, so I had the experience with superconducting circuits and cryogenics and things like that, that were relevant to quantum computing, but they were looking for somebody who could be a technical project manager within that group of physicists and organize, organize things and interface with the clients. So Hurting that's guys. how I wound up in quantum computing and it was very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> yeah. And what do you think about um, the state of quantum computing today and where it's going? Um, so quantum com computing today is maybe where say machine learning type AI type things were 10 plus years ago, very much still nascent. And currently in terms of actual physical quantum computers, I'd, I'd say what's available now in the cloud are still very much prototypes. Many different companies are using many different types of qubits, so they're based on different physical systems. Some qubits are based on the spin of an electron, some qubits are based on a, a loop of superconducting wire mm -hmm. with uh, mm -hmm. particles going around the loop of wire. And there are other systems where they've taken ions and they've trapped them using lasers. So there's still not a consensus as to what the best qubit is. Okay. will say it's not uh it's an ongoing conversation <laughs> it's not that's not clear so we're still okay. very much in the experimental phase but you know there are i mean what's on a little more sure footing are the that there are these algorithms that exist already that we know will exponentially improve upon what classical computers do and so one of them is involves solving linear systems of equations, which shows up in many places in the real world. But the other one, um, it's called Shor's algorithm, and it mm -hmm. will, we know, will break a lot of the encryption that we currently use to protect mm -hmm. our, you know, healthcare data, financial data, et cetera. So, so for sure, there's a big push in that side of things with quantum, in the quantum sphere, which is, so NIST uh, ran a challenge to discover new types of encryption that will be secure against quantum computers. So they've finished that and published uh, these new encryption, encryption schemes. And so there's a lot of work now going into upgrading software to incorporate these kinds of encryption to be secure against future quantum computers when they come fully online. Mm -hmm. and, and then there are all these other techniques that we're going to be using, I'm sure, in terms of quantum sensing. So sensors that are better able to measure magnetic fields and things like that. For example, I know that recently there was a study that came out looking at using these types of sensors for monitoring your position on the earth without mm -hmm. the need for satellite uh, communication with satellites. And then, um, and, you know, and again, using, making use of techniques in within quantum mechanics to secure communications along fiber optic cables. So there's something called quantum key distribution, which is being explored so that our you know, whole sort of internet system will be uh, more secure in the future. But yeah, I think it's still early days. We still don't understand, I think, how to think quantum mechanically. We mm -hmm. still think very much in the way that classical computers do. And so I think to fully harness 
quantum computing will ultimately somehow have to get better at thinking quantum mechanically. Okay. So just someone who is able like um, tying with like quantum computing said, not sure about the future and like, you know, impact on healthcare, so on. Um, I guess one question we have was, uh, what is the importance or your view of science or quantum computing applications for social change? Um, the examples areas your passion or interest. So I think we have policy, sustainability, homelessness, and the safety of children. Oh, these are just my, my list of personal areas where I would love to see technology developed to enable change for good. And I think one theme amongst a lot of these topics is that currently they aren't economically incentivized, right? Mm -hmm. It's, you don't make the most you know, the jobs that pay the most aren't at companies that are looking to, you know, end homelessness, for example, typically, or, you know, with trafficked people, things like that. So, you know, we know that social workers are typically overworked and underpaid. Yeah. So how do we change that paradigm? And I think that requires policy and government intervention, but also realizing that there's an economic case to be made. So just like with good company culture, and so we should maybe study that more and come up with KPIs that can be tracked, things like that. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, until you're really studying the problem, you're not going to be able to solve the problem. So, and you know, how much more productive could our economy be, for example? And so I'm, I'd be curious to know, you know, if you take quantum computing is actually a really good example. So there has been an extremely strong initiative across the globe many, many countries, governments are investing heavily in quantum computing. So we could do the same for these other topics or even blend them together. Mm -hmm. So there are initiatives around trying to marry things like machine learning and climate change or AI mm -hmm. and climate change or quantum and climate change, right? So mm -hmm. could we do the same thing where we marry some of these new technologies, like, you know, grants or initiatives, funding initiatives to marrying new technologies to these kinds of problems? Mm -hmm. That's great to hear. It's like looking for the solution is like already starting to solve the problem. So glad to hear that. Mm -hmm. um, see, what a, a follow-up question is, do you have any advice for others looking to get into any of these areas that attack, you know, uh, I guess specifically for women and historically included uh, technologists in the field? Yeah, I think in quantum computing, what's interesting is, you know, there's a lack of people who are trained in, in the space. And there are, as I say, there are these huge funding initiatives to try to invest in the space. And so it provides an opportunity for people to get involved. And I think people automatically think about students, but I actually think that we're overlooking older folks who could be retrained easily. So just as there are these code boot camps, I would love to see sort of boot camps into, you know, microwave electronics or things like that, or people who even have worked on microwave electronics and other domains of industry and it wouldn't take too much to retool them to work in this new up-and-coming field right because they have that uh, background knowledge of like working with the hardware working with industry if it doesn't translate to staring at a computer yeah screen, right? <laughs> yeah so i'd say it's you know and it's I, I personally feel it's never too late i constantly hear great stories about people who you know switched careers in their 40s or 50s even so I think if, if it's something that you're interested in, definitely go for it. And I'd say, you know, know your own potential, but if some someone's really excited to have you work with or for them, don't overlook that. 
and maybe in a little bit of time, it'll all become more clear to you whether or not that's your place. For people in positions of privilege inside this field or in other fields, I'd say, you know, look outside the box to mm -hmm. see potential. For example, a lot of companies will just post jobs on their, their own website. Um, but of course, you know, what does that mean? It means that the people who already work there, it'll typically filter to their network more than outside of that. So if the people who are already working there don't represent the demographic that you're looking to transition to, then maybe you need to think about posting the job in, in other places um, that will reach like more. women who code. <laughs> careers women who code exactly <laughs> and there are of course other women in tech groups there's also you know indigenous in tech um, mm -hmm. things like that and and I think we're all rewarded for that diversity of thought rewards companies ultimately mm -hmm. it's been shown that we're better problem solving when you have people mm -hmm. who get to the same right answer but come about it in very different ways yeah. yeah and, and just understanding I, like you said like the job description like you know we look for, like for certain keywords like in description like you said some um, companies you said you wanted more time to spend at home like you know with the pets or family or just like other ones you want to be have more freedom like to work on more projects so recognizing those like keywords in the job description mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think also you know and i've been on both sides of this people mm -hmm. are generally very excited when somebody is very excited about what mm -hmm. they do and to work with them so i've never applied somewhere where i hadn't already spoken to somebody there mm -hmm. um, and done some research about what they do and been excited about what they do so i would say a lot of people are pretty open to being cold called and messaged if you're mm -hmm. like hey, I did some research and I found your company and you work on this thing and I read this article about that thing and it's so exciting to me. How do I get involved? Can I have a few minutes of your time? I can't remember anybody who's ever said no. Mm -hmm. I do and, the same thing. <laughs> yeah, I think, and it, I mean, it works both ways, right? Like if if you're just blanketing various just companies. Like, yeah, just saying like know, too general you're sort of maybe operating from a place of fear also rather than a place of excitement. So mm -hmm. maybe just take a moment to check in and take a step back and go, what am I really looking for here? What do I really want to be doing? And then focus in on that, find the people, talk to them, find the companies and, and be a little more targeted, I'd say. Yeah. And I, you know, I think forming connect, you know, people hate the word networking, but just forming connections with other humans mm -hmm can plant seeds that may take years to grow, but sometimes they flower times and places that you weren't expecting and provide wonderful opportunities. And it was just because you had a natural connection with somebody. So I don't think of it as networking. I think of it as, you know, oh, this person and I like the same cookies at this booth at this conference, right? <laughs> and then a friendship grew and years later, it turned out to provide an opportunity for, you know, one of us or both of us. So I think, yeah, just going with the flow, following your nose and, you know, where you have a natural inclination towards um, a type of work or a company or people, mm -hmm. I think it's always going to point you in the right direction. This is great um, advice. I think also finding companies who value people like you is important as I've, when I was younger, I didn't really think about this, but um you know, for example, I've had to come to terms with the fact that I do well when I'm praised 
for doing well. And if, <laughs> if I only ever hear criticism uh, when I do things not as well and I don't really mm. get any praise when I do yeah. things well, then that's just not a paradigm that works for me. And, you know, just knowing that about yourself and knowing, okay, I need to find a boss who is the kind of person who will praise me. <laughs> right. Because not yeah, everybody I, does. Everybody has, has a different style, right? Right. And so I'm thinking like, yeah, like because I'm like, if you know, if it's constructive feedback that I could use and action on, but if it's not, then it's like, I can't change the weather. I can bring an umbrella to offset the bigger rain, but I can't make it stop raining. <laughs> mm -hmm. But yeah, so this is really great advice feedback for community. Those are starting out, like you said, doing like a lateral career move or like doing uh, later in their career. Um, well, so another follow-up question is uh, for coders who are like, you know, maybe interested right now in quantum computing field, um, are there any programming languages you and your teams use and could they could be considered like a transferable skill into these projects and spaces? Mm -hmm, absolutely. Um, Python is extremely common. Okay, that's um, good to hear. <laughs> so there are these uh, multiple platforms now where one can go and program quantum computers. So IBM has a platform called Qiskit and they are using, it's, it's Python based and there might be other versions of it. I'm not sure. There might be say okay. Java and C++ versions of it, mm -hmm. but I know for sure we typically are using the Python or Python-esque okay. implementations and uh, D-Wave also have these um, their SDK is called Ocean, also Python. Again, they might have versions in other languages, but I'm only confident in the Python. So certainly, and Python's a relatively easy language to learn. If you already know C mm -hmm. or Java, I'm sure it would be relatively easy to pick up. You know, a lot of my data science colleagues work in other languages, R, Stata, those kinds of things, or knowing, you know, MATLAB. I think those are all useful in that space. And then of course, being able to use tools in that sphere, TensorFlow, those kinds of things, right? Yeah, and I'll add um, a note from um, our data science fellow. It's like also storytelling with the data, like recognizing um, what you're looking for and how to measure it so that, like you said, like it's relevant to the question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, nothing beats a great visual and it can take so long to make the perfect visual, but yeah. it's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and oh, oh, this one. So, what made you decide to be an astronaut with the Canadian Space Agency in 2016? And um, what what is the feasibility of helping more women and historically excluded people travel into space? So, in 2008, the Canadian Space Agency put a call out for astronaut recruitment, and a friend mentioned it to me. And I actually realized that I would qualify once I was done my PhD. So in 2016, when they did their next recruitment search, I was in a place in my life that it was okay. It made sense for me and my family. And I thought, why not? At that point in time, actually, the Canadian astronauts were living in the U.S. and working primarily with the American astronauts. But the only shuttles that were going up to space at the time were in Russia. So they spent half their year in Russia. Wow. So it's a very, it was a very demanding in terms of lifestyle, we'll say. But, you know, at, the, at that time, there still hadn't been any female astronauts. And, and it just sort of appealed to me to think like, oh, maybe I could be the first as well. There are definitely, you know, more women now, but 
who are getting there and, and other minorities. What's really interesting to me is that it, so recently, I think it was in 2019, the European Space Agency did a selection round and it was the first time that disabled people were actually able to apply with certain types of disabilities. So we're really moving towards enabling more people to fulfill their passions. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, you know, I got to maybe the top 100 out of 3,500 candidates and nice. uh, was, was weeded out at that <laughs> point. But, um, and yeah. you know, now I'm in a place in my life where it doesn't really make sense to live such an adventurous lifestyle, but, but it's still very interesting. And, and now there are a lot of initiatives to build a moon base on the moon they're going to be decommissioning the International Space Station and mm -hmm. building a new deep space gateway that will uh, orbit the moon, I believe. And actually what's coming up now are um, challenges in physiology. That's really what's blocking us from going too much further. So the way that our bodies are really not that well suited to space and how we're <laughs> going to overcome that is probably the biggest hurdle for space exploration at this point in time. And, and I remember actually back in 2013, when I was leaving academia and exploring different companies to apply to, I actually applied to SpaceX as one of the companies. And oh, wow. I remember looking at the job postings and seeing at the time that there was a job posting for a spacesuit designer. And so I thought, that's where they're headed? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me when I um, visited San Francisco for the first time, I think there's MoMA that's called like the museum of like art and it's like yeah they had all the different spacesuits that had been used at the time and like the illustrations of like what they think future space colonies will look like so it sounds like it was an exciting time for you it's on a tangent so do you have a favorite space related film or tv show Ooh, um my favorite movie is the arrival actually which okay. is about aliens coming to earth and uh, something to communicate with us. And it revolves around the story of this linguist and her mm -hmm. attempt to um, communicate with them. Mm -hmm. I think it's based on the Ted Chiang, I pronounce it, the novel. Um, yes, yes, it's yes. a short story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For me, I guess like my first impression in space is um, Contact by Carl Sagan, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. Sagan, my phonetics. Um, I think like the movie, Still need to read the book and then uh, what's it called that tongue-in-cheek comedy spaceballs the movie okay yeah because <laughs> i just i was too young to really understand the tropes so then when i saw it and i saw like okay this comes from history the other like film like what they're making fun of so mm -hmm. really true for the space films <laughs> but yeah i love a lot of the stuff that happens in space but oftentimes i find i do have to turn off my physics brain because <laughs> so often things aren't quite right <laughs> I can see that point and that point in the sphere. So, yeah. Do you want to share an example? Um, you know, get it off your chest. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to say it's not easy to try to come up with a visualization for the inside of a black hole or mm -hmm. what a white hole might look like or even be experienced like because it's completely theoretical, but certainly it doesn't look like a library with a bunch of books. So <laughs> that was definitely one, um, you know, visualization. I won't call out the movie. I'm sure if okay. you've seen it, then you know what movie this is, but, uh, <laughs> but yes, you will not find a library inside of a black hole. 
Okay. So when there is a movie with like, um, once we know what the black hole looks like and the movie does have authentic, that's like, yeah, Danica will enjoy this movie. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm going to start wrapping up. So uh, Spirit of Women Who Code, applaud her technologist to watch. You mentioned you had someone you'd like to applaud and highlight for their contributions to these fields. And I believe, uh, we're not saying correctly, Aggie Brancic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. And I'll just read her profile. Uh, so she has been great at disseminating information about things quantum via um, LinkedIn and opening the field of quantum for women and minorities. Yeah, she's at the um, in Waterloo in Canada at the Institute for Quantum Computing, and I see her great posts on LinkedIn all the time and um, just very inclusive. Shout out to Eggie. <laughs> So for, for the next woman in Who Code uh, technologist to watch, I will nominate her. It's great to hear it's women helping support other women. So it's great to hear that. Uh, so for closing, uh, so Danica, where, where can we learn more about you or follow you online? Uh, LinkedIn is probably the best way. I am uh, keep a low profile online generally. I also, if you want to look at my publications on the archive or um, via the Bank of Canada's website, I have a profile on the Bank of Canada's website with my publications linked. It's very cool. I don't do any of that Twitter or fun stuff. <laughs> uh, and I'll just like repeat again, it's like, uh, so it's Danica Marsden, M-A-R-S-D-E-N, um, to find you online. That's great. Yes. So uh, thank you, Danica, for joining the show. Uh, thanks for everyone for joining the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash women who code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.